what do you get for the person who has everything? So about a month ago, we had Christmas, right? Um, I'm sure that you exchange gifts with a number of people. And I don't know about you, but there are people on your list, probably. There were certainly people on my list who I just have no idea what to buy them. I have no idea what to get for them because they're the kind of people that if they want something, they're just going to go buy it, right? They have every little knickknack, every little doodad, everything that I could possibly think that there is to have. And so by the time I have an idea, oh, maybe I can get them this thing, they already have it, or you know, they, they already have a better version of it. So those people that are hard to buy for, what do you get for them? Usually they just really appreciate you know, some thoughtful gift. Maybe they're the kind of person who doesn't appreciate gifts at all. Who knows? Paul here kind of has the same situation. Paul here is praying for those who have everything. Right? We looked last week in the book of Ephesians. Uh, there was a really dense passage, Ephesians 3 through 14, that covers a whole lot of things about our position in Christ. But, but the core of that, what we looked at last week, was our deep blessings because of Christ Jesus. Because of what Christ has done, we are deeply blessed. We are brought from having nothing to having everything. So how do you pray for a people like that? A people that have everything. Paul here finds a way. He prays for the Ephesians. He gives thanks for them in a, in a, beautiful, in a beautiful statement of, of their faith and love for each other. He says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, he's encouraging, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Then he says, I keep asking that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Paul here prays that the people will have a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know God better. He prays that their understanding is deepened. And there's three different ways that he prays for this, and we're going to dive into these three ways this morning, especially focusing on the last one. He prays that the people will know the hope to which God has called them. He prays that the people will know the riches of his glorious inheritance. And he prays that people will know the immeasurable greatness of God's power. He prays for those three things. For the people who have everything, he prays that they will know and understand the depth of the blessings that they have. Well, what does it mean to know something here? Before we go any further, we have to, we have to kind of get a handle on that, right? I know of Donald Trump. He may be the most famous person in the world today. He is he is our president. He is world famous. They talk about him on the news every single day. I know a lot of facts about Donald Trump. I can tell you where he's from. I can tell you his kids' names. I can tell you his wife's name. I can tell you kind of what he's been up to career-wise. But do I know Donald Trump? No, I don't. Don't know him. If we were walking down the street, he'd probably shake my hand. He'd probably be friendly. But he doesn't know me from Adam. See, there's a very big difference between knowing facts about someone 
including an incredibly public figure like our president, there's a difference between that and personally knowing them. There's a difference between knowing facts, there's a difference between knowing what God has done for us and that knowledge hitting bottom. There's a difference between knowing something up here in our heads and knowing something down here in our hearts. Between simply being able to recite the facts and having a conviction about it. Paul here is praying, not just for people to know facts about what God has done for them, not just to be able to recite, yes, you know, God has adopted me and justified me and this big old long theological list of what God has done for us. Not that that's not important, but he prays for their knowledge to go beyond the head knowledge to knowing facts about God, and he prays for it to settle in their hearts. So when Paul prays for them to know the hope to which he has called them, he's really praying for them to experience that hope deep in their souls. When he prays for them to know the immeasurable greatness of his power, he's praying for this, for this church to experience it, not just to know what powerful things that God has done. So as we dive into these three things, keep that in mind. Paul is praying that they may know with certainty, that they may experience these things. We looked at the first of these two uh, a little bit last week, um, and so we're not going to spend as much time on these this morning. But I want to I mention them in passing before we get to the third point and dive into our third point. First, Paul prays for the Ephesians to know the hope to which he has called them. This is looking back at the past. And if you remember last week, God the Father, before the foundation of the world, he called a people, he adopted a people. He has called a people out from one way of life to another. There's a calling on their lives. This calling is, is mentioned at other points in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 4, Paul writes, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. A few verses later, he says, you were called to one hope when you were called. See, when God predestined us, when he adopted us, it, it wasn't just a, you know, a theological recategorization. God called us from one life to another. When you're adopted, you are called from one family to another. You are no longer a part of one family. You have been called to a new life. And that's the way it is with us. For those of us who have been called by God, for those of us who have been in Christ, we have been called from one way of life to another. We're not supposed to live as we once did. We're not supposed to trust in the things that we once trusted in. We are supposed to trust in God and live in that calling. And because God has called us, we have a certain redemption. Right, Paul here, if you remember from last week again, he's looking at really the entire scope of human history. All of time and all of space fits into what he's talking about. And God called us before the foundation of the world, and he has a hope that kind of culminates in the very end of the world. So God called us before all things, and we have a hope with certainty that we will be redeemed on that last day. I think a good illustration for this would be a child and a father. 
The child is trapped in a burning building on the second floor. That's where his bedroom is. The father has escaped. And the father's standing outside underneath the window. The kid's up at the window. House is burning. And what does the father do? He calls for his son to jump. Jump. Trust me. I'm going to catch you. And because of the trust that this son has in the father, because he knows that his father is calling him to do a good thing, a thing that will benefit him, a thing that will save his life, because of that, what's the son going to do? He's going to jump. Does that mean that he's not scared? No, it doesn't mean he's not scared. Does that mean it's not risky? No, it doesn't mean that it's not risky. But the son is going to jump because of the certainty and the trust that he has in his father. As a people who have been called by God's name, as a people who have been adopted, called from one way of life to another, we have a certain hope in the one who has called us that he will accomplish what he has set out to do. Because God has called us, we have certainty. We have hope. And Paul's prayer is that the people know the hope of the calling of God. Next, we look at the riches of God's inheritance. Paul prays that they would know the riches of this inheritance. So if the last one, if the last thing that we looked at looks back at the past, right? God's calling was in the past. This one looks into the future. An inheritance that we receive with Christ. We looked back last week at verse number um, at verse number ten. I'm going to read it to you in a couple of versions. I realized last week when I was going through this um, that I studied in one version and then I read it in another. Actually, sidebar: How many people, if you have been reading Ephesians as I have challenged you to do in multiple translations, you may have uh, you may have run across something like this. Sometimes different translations. They, they say things different ways. And that doesn't mean that one translation is wrong or another translation is right. Sometimes they're just saying, they're restating things a different way. And so one of the reasons I've encouraged you to read Ephesians through in different translations is so that you can see, and that as words are reframed and phrases are just said a little bit differently, it kind of reorientates our mind to approach Scripture in a new way. For example, in uh, Ephesians 1.10, which we looked at last week, in the NIV, it says, In him we were also chosen, which is true, and that's a good translation. But another level of that is kind of relayed in the ESV. In him we have obtained an inheritance. And the idea behind this inheritance is sort of a both-and, two-fold thing. First, Christ has received an inheritance from God. His inheritance is us. We are the inheritance of God. But beyond that, we see in verse number 14 that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. So along with Christ, we receive an inheritance. Because Christ is blessed, we are also blessed. Because Christ has these riches that he has won by his death and resurrection, so we also experience these riches. And Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is that the people will know the wealth of the riches of the inheritance of God. 
one of one of the things I daydream about, and maybe this is something that you daydream about as well, um, is that you know you're just minding your own business one day, and there's a knock at the door, and someone says, "Hey, your great uncle Harry, whom you didn't know at all, he passed away, and he is a multimillionaire." And you say, "I'm very sorry for Harry, but I didn't know him, but I'm happy to be getting I'm happy to be getting a portion of this inheritance." You know, maybe Great Uncle Harry leaves a million dollars for each of the cousins. And even though you didn't really know this guy, you're now set. Maybe you can retire early. Maybe you can afford to, you know, go to school. Maybe you can afford to do what you would not have. Pay off the house. Buy a boat. It's a fantasy that I've had. You know, it's something I daydream about. And it's probably something that you daydream about, too. But the riches that we have in Christ are much greater than any riches that we can receive from any late, great Uncle Harry. See, any earthly riches that we build up, it's not a bad thing to do that at all. But anything we build up in this life isn't going to transfer over to the next life. Any notoriety that we have in this life won't continue into the next. So when Paul prays for the people to know the riches of God's inheritance, one of the things that means is to know how much our riches in this life pale in comparison to the riches that we have in Christ. And we have great riches, incredible riches. All of the blessings of Christ we get to participate in, we get to share in. We are blessed because of Christ. We have everything that we will ever need we will be able to share in the eternal presence of God himself, which is greater than any earthly riches that we can have. So Paul prays for his people, the church in Ephesus, to know the riches that they have in Christ. So first, he prays for them to know the hope of his calling. Second, he prays for them to know the riches of the inheritance. And third, and this is where I want to settle if we can, Paul prays for them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. There was a king uh, in the 14th century in Africa. Uh, his name was Musa I, and he ruled over the kingdom of Mali. Musa I was a Muslim, and as every good Muslim does, he made a pilgrimage to Mecca. One of the things he did along the way as he traveled across northern Africa and down into the Arabian Peninsula is he gave away gold. You see, King Musa was so rich, beyond all belief, he gave away so much gold on his trip that the price of gold dropped for a decade. Think about that for a second. Can you imagine someone in today's day and age giving away so much money that it affected the inflation rate of the United States. Money just stopped buying as much as, it, as much as it used to. That's what happened here. This guy gave away so much gold, people are like, oh, gold, there's plenty of that just lying in the corner because this rich king dropped it all off 10 years ago. It's an extravagant display of wealth. The idea here behind God's extravagant display of power is similar. God's display of power is over the top. God's display of power is beyond what we can consider, beyond what we can comprehend. 
It's immeasurably great. Think again, perhaps, of a natural disaster, a hurricane, an earthquake. As much as we humans want to, we can't change the weather. Maybe a better illustration is a blizzard, which we're going to get tonight or tomorrow or both. As much as we want to, we can't stop that blizzard, can we? You can you know, get out our leaf blowers and try to blow into the wind and just to try to move it into Ohio or whatever, but that's, that's not going to work. As much as we try to affect the weather, to affect the natural disasters and movements of the earth, as much as we try to do that, we fail because they come with such an incomparably great power. The power of Jesus Christ is kind of like that. Paul uses an overabundance of words here uh, in verse number 19. I put up on the slides this translation in the message. It's not actually a translation. The message is technically a paraphrase. It was uh, paraphrased by a guy named Eugene Peterson. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. I would recommend what he wrote. Um, he passed away last year. He was a Presbyterian minister. He's done a lot of great work for God's kingdom. Uh, but he, one of the things he did was he paraphrased the Bible. And this isn't a translation. This shouldn't replace you know, your normal reading out of the ESV or King James or whatever you use. But it can be really good to get us into a different frame of mind, into a different mindset. Because one of the things he does really, really well throughout this paraphrase is he gets at the emotion of the text really, really well. And maybe as you're reading through the book of Ephesians, pull up the message on BibleGateway.com. Again, it's not a translation. You kind of have to hold it a little loosely. But just to get a different perspective on things. Here's how he puts this verse, verse number one, or chapter one, verse number 19. Oh, the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him. Endless energy, boundless strength, extravagance, endlessness, immeasurableness. That is God's power at work in Christ. And Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is that they know that power. Not know about that power, not know facts about that power, but experience that power. What does that look like? Well, according to Paul, this power is demonstrated in Christ's first resurrection and second enthronement. Some of, the time, some of the time I think that we as Christians in modern-day evangelicalism focus, this is a dangerous thing to say, focus too much on the death of Christ at the expense of some of Christ's other works. Now, don't get me wrong. The death of Christ is incredibly important. Christ took the wrath of God for us. He is the atoning sacrifice for us. But sometimes we focus so much on that that we think that the resurrection is just, oh yeah, he was dead and we had to bring him back somehow. We didn't want him to stay dead, so we just brought him back to life. But that's not how the New Testament paints his resurrection at all. The resurrection of Christ and what comes after the resurrection the enthronement are both incredibly important works of Christ. It's important that Christ died and took our sin, but it's also important that God raised him from the dead. It's also important that God seated him on his right hand. And if we're thinking about immeasurable displays of power, what greater display is there than raising a guy from the dead? 
Think about that for a second. That's all a fact that we know, right? Because we've been going to church. We confess the creed every week that talks about, I believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And that's important. But how often do we stop to think about that? The absurdity of resurrection. The immeasurable greatness of resurrection. There was a man who was dead, and now he is alive. And I firmly believe that with every ounce of my being. It's the greatest display of power in human history. God reaching down to raise a human being from the dead. And by doing so, he declared that God has power over the powers of sin, over the powers of death. The works of Satan began to end on the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And one day we will all rise from the dead physically and participate in that eternal life because of what Jesus Christ did at his resurrection. So Christ was raised from the dead. He was resurrected from the dead. But he was also, and we don't talk about this too much, he was raised to sit on the right hand of God the Father. Now there's a quote in here. Um, if, you have, if you have notes in your Bible, you may see where the quote's from. It's from Psalm 8. Uh, verse number 22 says this, And God placed all things under his feet. Now without looking... Back in Psalm 8, who do you think Paul, excuse me, who do you think the psalmist is talking about? This, this psalm that Paul is quoting here, he's going to place all things under his feet. What is Psalm 8 talking about? Is it talking about God? That's a good guess, right? You know, God is the sovereign king over all things. He's the one who, who has power over everything. But if you think about it for a minute, God is the one who is putting all things underneath Christ's feet. So it can't be God back in Psalm 8. God has to be doing that to someone else in Psalm 8. So who is it? Is it the Messiah? Is it the king? Is it David or Solomon or, or this architect, archetype of the Israelite king who would come that we call the Messiah? Is it him? That was my guess for what it's worth until I actually looked up Psalm 8 and read it. But it's not the king. It's not a prophecy of the Messiah who was to come. Psalm 8 actually talks about something very different, and I want to I read it if we can. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the stars, the skies above, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? What is humanity that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him, again, this is all humanity here, a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Did you catch what Psalm 8 is looking back at? 
So Ephesians 1 quotes Psalm 8. But what does Psalm 8 look back to? It looks back to creation. When I consider the works of your hands, O God, the sun and the stars, and he kind of goes through the days of creation, right? The psalmist. When I consider all of these, when I look up and I see the incredible lights in the sky, when I see all that you have done, who am I? Who are we that you have raised us up? See, if you look at the creation narrative, God created humanity at the same time as he created most of the other animals. If you look at our bodies purely biologically, we share a lot in common with some animals. So why were we chosen? Why did God lift us up and give us dominion over all of these animals? Because that's what he did. He gave them dominion, Adam and Eve, over the fish of the air. The fish of the air. There's no fish in the air. He gave them dominion over the birds of the air and the fish in the sea and the animals that walk around. And the psalmist is saying, who am I? You lifted us up above all of these animals. You have set us beneath the heavenly beings, beneath the angels. Who are we? that you have put all things under our feet. And if you remember, back to our Advent series, I know I talk about Adam and Eve a lot, and that's because they show up a lot in Scripture. But Adam and Eve didn't do what they were supposed to. They were supposed to have dominion over all of the animals. But they let one of the animals, the snake, get out and tempt them, and they believed him. They failed to do what they were supposed to do. But when Paul in Ephesians 1 looks back to Psalm 8, he says, Jesus Christ is the one who is going to have all things under his feet. Jesus Christ is the one who is going to do what Adam and Eve could not and did not do. Sometimes we as Western Christians, right, we live in a very rational, logic-driven, enlightenment age. We live in an age that tends to push back on the deity of Jesus, right? If you talk to uh, somebody who's not of faith, they'll say, no, I don't think Jesus was God. He was probably was just a, a great human teacher, you know, someone we should listen to, but someone who wasn't God. And we as the church usually push back on that, and we do that appropriately, right? Jesus is God. But sometimes I think we push back on that so much that we forget that Jesus is also human, and when we read a passage like this, that has Christ exalted above everything, that has all things placed underneath Christ's feet, our mind kind of immediately snaps into thinking that this is Jesus Christ functioning as God, right? Because he is God, he's going to have all things under his feet. But that's not what's going on here. Because Jesus Christ is human, he has all things placed under his feet. Because Jesus is doing what Adam and Eve could not do, because he died, because he rose again, because he has been exalted to reign alongside God the Father, he has all things under his feet. Except this time, it's not just the animals who he has dominion over. This time, it's everything. Every human ruler, every angel, Every false deity. Remember we looked at a couple weeks ago the temple of Diana. There, there was a, a cult in the city of Ephesus. It's the cult of Diana. There was a large temple there. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Paul here is saying, Jesus Christ, yep, greater than that false deity. The personified powers of sin and death Christ is exalted above. 
every power except the fellow persons of the Trinity. Christ is exalted above them all. Every angel, every demon, Caesar Augustus, Donald Trump, whoever you can think about, Christ is above them all. He was enthroned at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So it wasn't just the death of Christ. He was taken from death, from being cursed, from being cast aside, to being raised from the dead and gloriously exalted above all things as the king. Jesus Christ is above all. And as we looked at last week, this subjection, right, the gathering of all things underneath Christ, under his headship, at the fullness of time, at the end of all things, that will finally be realized. To read verse number 10 again, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. But what does that look like now? Let's finish reading Ephesians 1. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head of over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So Christ will unite all things under his headship at the fullness of time, when everything is ended. But now we are the body who is united under the headship of Christ. We are the people who recognize Jesus Christ as king over all. You go outside into the world, talk to a random person who doesn't acknowledge or confess Jesus Christ, they're not going to recognize him as king. They're not going to recognize that all things are being put under his feet. But in here, in the church, as the body of believers who are called out by God, we recognize that fact. We live under his rule, under his headship. So this subjection is realized at the fullness of times, but the gathering of all things together is also fulfilled in Christ's filling of the church now. Paul prays that we may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenlies. Just want to focus on one more thing. The word exerted there, if you take that Greek word and you follow it throughout the book of Ephesians, you see all of the ways in which God is at work. He's at work here, yes, in the raising and enthronement of Christ. But he's also at work in the church. In the next chapter, and actually just a couple verses, what we'll look at next week, he writes this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is what? Now at work in those who are disobedient. So there's a power that is at work in this world now. But we see that Christ is also at work. Chapter 3, verse number 30, Paul concludes another one of his prayers like this. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us. The power that raised Christ from the dead. His power at work in us. His power who is able to do immeasurably more than what we ask or imagine is at work 
in us. Chapter 4, verse number 12, to equip his people for the works of service, same word, works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. So what does it mean, what does it functionally look like to know the power that has raised Christ from the dead? To know the power that has seated Christ at God's right hand as king over all and subjected everything to his feet. First, we experience this power when we are spiritually raised from the dead. We're going to talk about this a lot more next week. But we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive in Christ. When that happened, we experienced the power that raised Christ from the dead. We were dead in our trespasses, but we are made alive in Christ. We also experience this power when the body, this church, grows up into maturity. That's a kind of a deep concept, and we're going to talk about that a whole lot more when we look at Ephesians 4. But the picture in Ephesians 4 is Christ as the head over the body, and this body growing, this body equipping itself. Right? I have a newborn son, and one of the, one of the weirdest things about having a son for, you know, who's several weeks old and watching him grow is just the way his body grows. Right? He's chubbier than he was. It's not, it's, not a, um, it's not instantaneous. He doesn't just wake up and then he's got like, you know, a big arm and the rest of him has a lot to catch up. No, it's just slowly, gradually growing and growing and growing. That's the picture of the church. The body in Ephesians 4 is described as growing up into the maturity of Christ. That's how we experience the power of the enthroned Jesus. Right, because he has made the head over all things. All things are being gathered underneath him. This power is being shown as Christ fills the church. So the power that raised Christ from the dead, the power that has seated him, excuse me, on the right hand of God the Father, is made known to us. We can experience that as we just simply participate in the life of this church. We should experience the power that raised Jesus from the dead as we are made alive and brought into Christian maturity. We experience this power when we live in peaceful community with each other. We experience this power and we know this power when we tell others about the kingship of Jesus. Other people who don't recognize Jesus as king and we tell them, hey, Jesus is king over everything. You should serve him with your life. We experience this power, and we know this power, when we make disciples who follow King Jesus. We experience this power, and we know this power, when we as a body of believers pray. For those outside this body, for those inside this body. But when we seek God's face and pray, we experience that power. When we read the word of God, when we do any of these things, any of these Christian virtues... We experience the power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him on God's right hand. I know that this church has a long history. Uh, we celebrate actually 100 years this year. Peace Presbyterian Church was founded as First Reformed Church in 1919. I know a bulk of you know this history far better than I do. I don't know how many of you, I know it's a, a number of you, a number of you were baptized in this church as infants. 
70, 80, 90 years ago, and you've grown up in this church, and we'll have your funeral in this church. Your entire life has been committed to this body of believers. And for those of you who have walked with Peace Presbyterian or First Reformed, whatever you want to call it, that entire length of time, you've seen a church that's had its heyday. And as we look around on a Sunday morning and see maybe a dozen, maybe 20 people here, it can be tempting to think that there's not power here. It can be tempting to think that the power of God has passed us by, that we're just biding our time until everything just kind of ends. That can be tempting. People of God, my prayer for you, just like Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, is that you may know and experience the power that has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We are still the body of Christ. We are still the people of God. We still experience his power. As we pray, as we love one another, as we exercise our spiritual gifts, the power of Christ is still at work in us. He is not done. We look forward to the day when all things are finally subjected underneath him, when we finally worship as we should, when every tear is wiped away. But until that day, my prayer is that you would know the power that has raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that you would know the power that has exalted Christ over everything. There will come a day when every knee will bow to King Jesus. Every knee in the heavens above this earth, in the region below this earth, every knee on this earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. People of God, I urge you, know and experience that power. Share that power. Participate in that power. And I pray that we are a body that grows up into maturity after our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, you are great. You are above all. Lord, I praise you for the calling that you have placed on our lives. Lord, you have called us out of darkness into light. And I pray that we would live, live worthy of that calling. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with hope of that calling. Lord God, I praise you for the inheritance that you're giving Christ and the fact that we, get, that we can participate in that. Lord, I pray that we would know the wealth of that glorious inheritance, that we would be convinced by it, that we would rest in that. Lord, as we've spent so much time this morning, Lord, we praise you for the work of Christ. Yes, we praise you for his death. Yes, we praise you for his resurrection, Lord. And we praise you for his enthronement, the fact that he is seated at the right hand of you. Lord, we pray that we would experience that power, that Peace Presbyterian Church would know the power that bids everything in heaven and on earth to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let us be a people who acknowledge you as king and whose lives reflect that fact. Cause us to grow up into maturity. But above all, Lord, we pray that you would glorify your name. We worship the Christ who is above all things. Lord, we praise you for his work, for his death, his resurrection. Lord, we praise you that he will come back to rule all things one day. 
In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.